Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore issues that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider how traditional psychotherapy, with its emphasis on the self, could potentially work with Zen practices like meditation, with their de-emphasizing of the ego, to overall make us feel better. I need to go back in time a little to share the background for this episode. So I've always had mild claustrophobia. It intensified dramatically roughly five years ago. I started feeling panicky on the subway and very uncomfortable on crowded city streets. That is not great for someone who lives in New York, needless to say. So I started seeing a cognitive behavioral psychologist who taught me strategies for dealing with this fear. One of those strategies was mindfulness. She told me to pick something small, like someone's shirt, and shift my focus to describing it in detail that shirt right in front of me right now. It was really helpful and I became much more interested in the usefulness of a Zen approach. Normally I'd start reading about it, but I'm a complete novice and there's an enormous body of literature out there about Zen Buddhism and I had no idea where to begin. But then recently the New York Times book review ran a rave review of a book by Mark Epstein called The Zen of Therapy uncovering a hidden kindness in life. I read it and was very taken with it, <laughs> perhaps too taken. You'll hear in the episode, I became a quite annoying example of how a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. No, don't regardless, be too hard on yourself. Too. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Just ask my daughters, I was annoying. But regardless, we reached out to Dr. Epstein to see if he'd join us on the show. And to my very great excitement, he said yes. Dr. Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of a number of books about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including Advice Not Given, The Trauma of Everyday Life, Thoughts Without a Thinker, and Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. In The Zen of Therapy, in the words of his publisher, he reflects on one year's worth of therapy sessions with his patients to observe how his training in Western psychotherapy and his equally long investigation into Buddhism in tandem led to greater awareness for his patients and for himself. We started by talking with Dr. Epstein about the interplay that he aims for between meditation and psychotherapy. Take a listen. I was uh, um, immersed in Buddhism or mired in Buddhism or what, what, however you want to say it, interested in meditation way before I became a psychiatrist. That aspect of the holy life, you know, that meditation actually could um, relieve you of uh, some of the pain and stress and anxiety of being a person and that it might be possible to bring that into uh, psychotherapy is something that's motivated me for a long time. That um, uh, meditation didn't just have to be an internal one-person kind of thing, but could be a relational uh, endeavor, a two-person uh, kind of thing like we do in psychotherapy. You begin the section on clinging with this recorded saying or poem um, from Chao Chu, a Buddhist master from the 8th century. A monk asked, 
What is meditation? The master said, it is not meditation. The monk said, why is it not meditation? The master said, it's alive. It's alive. <laughs> You're the first person to uh, to pull that out and ask me about it. But that's my favorite. That's one of my favorite things. Oh, I'm so glad that we're asking you about yeah. it. So since it's one of your favorites, um, maybe that partially ans- answers my question. But why did you choose this poem to introduce the section on clinging? And also, what do you mean by clinging? Well, we cling to all kinds of things. We cling to each other. We cling to our partners, but also we cling to our identities and we cling to our notions of right and wrong. Uh, So we even cling to our ideas about what meditation is, what therapy is, what meditation is not, uh, what therapy is not. So I think uh, at one level, that little quote is directed at people who think they know what meditation is and who therefore are attached to their version, their form, their method, their technique. And that can be, uh, that can become constraining or Mm -hmm. obsessive or compulsive. Um, And the idea of it's alive, it's alive, you know, meditation at its best, I think, takes us into territory where we don't know what's coming next. You know, we don't exactly know where we are or who we are anymore. And that's very liberating for a lot of people who are held back by uh, all of their ideas, uh, all their clinging to uh, uh, notions of who they are who they are and who they're not and what they're capable of and what they're not. One of your patients, whom you call Sally in the book, was upset with her parents for not calling after Sally had to take cover in the basement of a hotel during a tornado. There are texts with the parents, but no phone call. You told her, why not call them yourself? And you say that you were reminded of the Buddhist concept of injured innocence, Mm -hmm. as well as a statement from Adam Phillips about how the violent nostalgia for what went wrong in our childhood is often the hardest thing to let go. Mm -hmm. Like many of us, I sometimes find myself mystified and hurt when my parents don't do what I wish they would. Um, Can you explain injured innocence and violent nostalgia a little more. They seem important, but my mind would rather be mad at my parents um, than (laughs) grapple with these concepts. (laughs) Well, um, I'll try to help you with that a little bit. Thank you. you. Um, Many of us Many people who become therapists and many people who go into therapy or many people who resist going into therapy are holding a grudge uh, from childhood, a well-reasoned grudge, you know, not something that they've made up, but a, a feeling of absence where maybe there should have been more presence. There are also many people, of course, who were actively mistreated or even abused in childhood. That's a a slightly different story. But this idea of injured innocence uh, is more directed at people who feel a a kind of emptiness uh, that maybe was there in their childhood and that maybe has become internalized. That's a very important uh, experience Uh, to be unpacked both in therapy and in meditation, but it's easy to get stuck in the resentment or the rage or the anger or what Adam Phillips calls the violent nostalgia Mm. in which 
uh, people are more or less unconsciously trying to get that empty place filled. They can therefore become very dependent uh, on their partners, on intimate relationships, trying to uh, get that empty place taken care of by the adult partner. From a therapeutic place, it's like if you didn't get it when you're when you were a child, it's unlikely you're going to find someone who can give it to you now, because mm-hmm. you're not a child anymore. So even if you find someone who treats you like a child, you're going to rebel against that. At a certain point, one has to lay that need down and kind of accept the residual emptiness and move forward. Mm-hmm. And I've found that meditation can be very helpful for people in doing just that. For a while after I read your book, my catchphrase became, the self is a construct. My daughters, my mother, my friends, they'd share with me something that someone else had done that was truly annoying. And I would say, you know, the self is a construct. (laughs) And they'd say, what does that mean? And I'd say, I'm not 100% sure, but isn't it useful? And my daughters especially would say, no. Uh, So can you help? You know, what does the self is a construct mean? And why is it so useful to me, (laughs) to me at least? Yes. Well, I think it might have been useful to you coming off of reading the book. It might not be the most helpful thing to, uh, I don't think I've ever as a therapist come out and said, uh, the self is a construct in response to somebody's uh, (laughs) distress. But there are people, especially people involved in um, the spiritual world and in Buddhism and so on, who um, retreat to that place of everything being a construct and therefore uh, manifest a a kind of paucity of empathy Mm. in relationship to other people's suffering. So I I think that that's maybe a... um, something to watch out for right. I was about to say something to avoid but uh, but you know the the self is a construct mm. and um, that relates back to what we were just talking about in terms of uh, the feeling of injured innocence when you privilege your own uh, resentment or your own uh, Uh, sense of uh, what's right and what's wrong to the degree where you're laying that that trip on other people, uh, it's very helpful to have that internal mantra like you're describing of the self as a construct because it it relieves you of the uh, intense feeling of me that uh, sometimes uh, it actually becomes an overly protective kind of suit of armor that in another way cuts you off from uh, your better self or other people or the ability to empathize or contextualize or relativize your own pain. You know? I want to share with our listeners a passage from the book about a private meeting you had with the Dalai Lama in the early 1980s. You asked him whether meditation was trying to get rid of the self that Western psychology thought was so important. And you write, I was hoping it was. I was unsure of myself, uncomfortable in my own skin, and had always found Buddhist thought appealing because of the way it downplayed the importance of ego. I was ready to declare the self to be unreal and be done with the whole thing. No, he said, our human birth is a great privilege. It's just that the self we take to be so real is never as real as we think it is. Selflessness means seeing things for what they are, he declared, identifying as non-existent, something that never did exist in the way we imagine it. 
I'm not sure I have a question. It's possible. <laughs> I just want to seize the opportunity just to record. To read that aloud. Just read yeah. that aloud on Book yeah. Dreams so that everyone can hear it. But um, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share about that passage? Well, the other way that the Dalai Lama explained that is by saying that in, in a normal life, most of us are like somebody wearing sunglasses. We see the world through the distorted color, you know, including ourselves. But that the uh, enlightened person, the awakened person, knows that he or she is wearing sunglasses, you know, so recognizes the distorted color for what it is. So he's saying, I think that we all have the sense of self. We're all very attached to the sense of self. Just to say that it's unreal, you know, as I was hoping he would, doesn't do justice to what it is to be an individual, you know, Mm -hmm. but that it's possible to both have that sense of self and be suspicious of the sense of self at the same time. And that when we can do that, when we're like the person who knows that we're wearing sunglasses, there's a tremendous freedom that comes with that. I found that very helpful because the the Buddhist teaching of non-self or of emptiness is the one that everybody trips over uh, because it's very, very hard to understand. And if if you find someone who says they understand it, usually they don't. That's again where this idea of uh, not making sense and of being in the unknown and of being a little bit unsure about who and what we are is a helpful Buddhist therapeutic thing. Is this idea that that we're perceiving ourselves through these sunglasses and that our sense of self both exists and is distorted, is that just a much more comfortable and liberating idea when you're in your 50s as compared to when you're in your 20s? I don't really think so. I mean, it it really helped me when I was in my early 20s, which is when I came upon all of this. It really helped me just to settle myself down. I always tell the the story about um, going to the um, college health service therapists when I was in my first or second year of college and talking out my anxieties to the therapist that was given to me. He listened very patiently and then after like three sessions said to me, you know, what you're really suffering from, it's not that serious. We call it the Oedipus complex. And I didn't know what he was talking about, Uh but it was sort of helpful that he gave it a name but it didn't help me in any deeper way. And then shortly thereafter, I I found myself in my first uh, meditation uh, classes and the teachers that I had then who were young with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, people might know who they are now. They've become well-known Buddhist teachers, but I met them. They were like 30 years old. They were like, stop trying to figure yourself out and just be with yourself, you know, the way you actually are. And I was like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> is that possible? How do you do that? Yeah. I was in my head trying to figure myself out and getting more and more anxious, you know, because I couldn't. And so I I began to learn the rudiments of meditation. Like, really, I could just be like moment to moment accepting of whatever it was I was finding in my mind and body, you know. And that was so helpful in terms of uh, giving me a way of working with the anxiety, but not just the anxiety of being this young, you know, person trying to figure myself out in the world. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's helpful at any age. Yeah. I asked a friend what she would ask you if she were interviewing you. 
And the question that she wrote is a little tongue in cheek, but I think it gets at something bigger. She wrote, is it possible to channel Zen when COVID ruined your 60th birthday, likely the last during which you won't have chronic pain or age spots, and our poor excuse for the highest court in the land is systematically undermining civil rights? We're all facing forces of extensive societal and environmental change, much of it bleak. How can a practice of Zen meditation help? And how much of a risk is there that a Zen mentality leads us in the direction of inaction? Well, I think in in a situation like your friend is describing, that's exactly the time to practice Zen. That's when we need it more than ever. I think there's a very real risk that uh, too much of a reliance on any spiritual uh, force that counsels acceptance and compassion will lead to inaction. So that's definitely something to watch out for. But that doesn't mean that it's still not helpful and still might not be actually uh, good motivation for action. So her question makes me think of a couple of things. It makes me think of going to visit a um, old friend and teacher of mine named named Richard Alpert, who became known as Ramdas, uh, who was very important to me in my early 20s and who I was fortunate enough to go and visit the year before he died at his home in uh, Maui, in Hawaii. And he had a, um, a big uh, table basically full of spiritual picture, pictures of his various masters, his various teachers, like a puja uh, that uh, he would light incense on or candles or whatever when he meditated. But uh, there on that puja was a picture. It had been of uh, uh, George W. Bush, but now it was of Donald Trump and mm-hmm. where he was practicing, you know, even to George Bush, even to Donald Trump, sending uh, compassionate energy, hoping mm-hmm. to uh, enlighten his mind, you know. So the, you know, the divisiveness that everyone uh, bemoans in our country now that is causing so much pain to everyone, who's going to heal that? How are we going to heal that? Whose responsibility is it to heal that? In an interview with Dan Harris on the 10% Happier podcast, You said that you wrote this book in part because you're now in your middle to late 60s. You're going to disappear. You said Mm -hmm. no one will ever know that you're doing no one what I'm doing. No one will ever know know what you're doing in your therapy sessions. Exactly. And I think the exact quote is there was an ego thing in the initial writing. Mm -hmm. You said I had a similar motivation when I became a children's book writer in my 30s. I knew I was going to disappear and I wanted to create something that outlasted me. At the same time, though, you've described meditation retreats this way to your mother. Something happens there. You get beyond yourself. You see all your usual thoughts and preoccupations, but they come and go. And sometimes you touch places you didn't know were there. And that gives you a sense of being part of something greater, of something that might not die when the body dies. If we're part of something bigger that might not die when our bodies do, then why can't we let go of our drive to leave a mark? It's so frustrating. And should we? Well, um, 
I think the drive to leave a mark is completely human Mm -hmm. and doesn't have to be judged. We're all doing our individual work and the artists among us, you know, need to make art and the therapists need to do therapy and the book writers need to write books. And that's culture, you know, that's the making of culture. That doesn't mean that we still don't all have to face the fact that we're going to get age spots or that we're going to get old or that we're going to get sick or that we're going to die. Each of those experiences necessitates some kind of letting go, which doesn't come naturally. It depends, you know, in some way it does come naturally, but we're divorced from that uh, naturalness. Or in another way, it doesn't come naturally because we're all embodied individual humans trying our best to hang on to ourselves and our lives. But the Buddhist teaching is definitely that it's possible. Maybe it even feels better to uh, learn to let go. I am fascinated by this theme that keeps coming up in our conversation. The interplay between, on the one hand, recognizing and honoring and healing the self, and on the other hand, seeing that we're part of something bigger and yielding to that. It arises when we're confronting big questions like, how much do we fight for a kind of immortality? And how much do we surrender to the reality of our inevitably minuscule place in the scope of eternity. But the issue can come up also in far more prosaic ways. I want to share one example from the book when Dr. Epstein offers a strategy for bringing a much needed broader perspective to irritating mundane moments. I'm guessing I know the example you're thinking of, and I hope I'm right because I wanted to talk about this story here too. Are you thinking about Donald? Yes, indeed, I am. Okay. So, (laughs) for our listeners, here is the story. Donald's a finance guy. One day, after a long day at work, he decides to stop and pick up dinner for the family. He texts his wife and daughters, gets their orders, then goes to get the food. He decides that the half sandwich is big enough for one of his daughters because she never finishes her food anyway. So he gets everything, he brings it home, and the first thing, the very first thing his wife says is, only half a sandwich? (laughs) Then she criticizes the size of soup he got her, even though she asked for that size. He's angry and hurt, and they have a terrible rest of the evening. Oh, so relatable, right? So he brings it up in his next therapy session, of course, and Dr. Epstein shares some Buddhist perspective, which Donald listens to carefully but doesn't fully get. And finally, Donald says, in essence, well, if you'd been there with me in the room, invisible, when my wife was criticizing the half sandwich and the soup, what would you have told me to do? And Dr. Epstein is stumped at first, but then he says, basically, try to find this moment funny which I take to mean try to step outside the scene for a second into the bigger picture and look at what's happening with a kind of amusement. You know, find the humor in how seriously we can take ourselves and our choices, even when we're talking about what size the soup is or is not, as the case may be. Right, right, exactly. It is such good advice and so hard to do. I reread the Buddhist perspective that Dr. Epstein shared with Donald He said it was a golden opportunity to, quote, hear the cry of the self that doesn't exist, the clear voice of the false self. 
I mean, I 100% understand why Donald had trouble understanding what that meant. Oh, yeah. But, yeah right. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So by way of explanation, Dr. Epstein writes, the pressures we are under to perform to survive as individuals in a challenging environment, to be a single little person in a competitive world where most people are out for themselves, they lead us to create a false front, a false entity that is established at the expense of the ability to relax and have faith in the support of the surround. I find that so interesting that the false front that we all present to the world prevents us from being able to trust and enjoy and be nurtured by the people close to us. I mean, I, I find myself wondering, is it even possible to live a life where you're not presenting some kind of a false front? I mean, I, I expect that it's not, but just to hold on to that concept, you know, it's difficult, but I think definitely worth trying, mm. trying to at least be aware of that false front and the impact that it has. Yeah. That and try to have a sense of humor about whatever it is, is challenging you in the moment. Right, right. And I love this language that he uses, to have faith in the support of the surround. Yeah. I like yeah. to think that it includes both the people who are close to us, having faith in them, and maybe having faith in something else too that's nurturing in the world around us. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it's food for thought, and I find it comforting. Regardless, let's try to remind ourselves both to have faith in the support of the surround and to remember our sense of humor. I love that idea. Thank you. Yes, You're let's do that. You're very welcome. <laughs> I think I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Dr. Epstein at markepsteinmd.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.